0: Everybody, welcome to another episode of 100 Words or Less, the podcast. I'm your host, as always, Ray Harkins. Thank you for downloading whatever day you were listening to this on. I know days are pretty much irrelevant right now with uh, the quarantine going on because you know what difference is a Monday versus a Saturday, but, anyways, you are here to listen to discussions about independent music and people that are involved with creating it in some capacity, whether that's putting records out, whether that's playing in bands. Whatever it is, they care about it immensely, and they're lifers. These are the people who I like to feature. And today I have J.B. Brubaker, who is the guitarist from Awesome Metalcore Stalwart's August Burns Red. I mean, they've been doing it for, gosh, I want to say that I first heard their name probably early 2000s, I want to say, or maybe in late 90s. I can't remember when Thrill Seeker came out. Maybe 2001? I don't know. But uh, they are an incredible band because they have been able to transcend not only the uh, you know confines of the Christian music scene that they were kind of initially thrust into, but then be able to you know shed the comparisons of many bands that they were initially compared to, and they're just they're they're a great band and they put on a great show. So, I had JB on, and uh, this was gosh, I want to say maybe about a couple weeks into the quarantine. So you know, again, I don't really talk about that in the interview, but uh, you know, I just always like to put it in the context for when you were listening to this. I hope you are doing well. I am, you know, like day to day. I unfortunately had to put my 15-year-old pup to sleep recently, which was a sad day. But um, you know, she lived a good life. We adopted her, and um, yeah, it's it's always sad when those things happen. But uh, you know, was able to say goodbye to her and uh, you know, send her off to the uh, to the the great unknown, as it were. But uh, yeah, she was a, she was a great dog rest in peace Callie, and uh, if any of you are experiencing any sort of uh, you know uh, loss depression anything like that you can always email the show 100 words podcast at gmail.com and uh, I of course I'm not a licensed uh, therapist or doctor in any capacity but I uh, you know try to make try to make people feel better where I can so anyways uh, that's all I got for that and uh, let's talk to JB okay here is the show yeah, yeah, yeah. when I am, uh, you know, doing these little, little, little preparations for these discussions, uh, anytime I am, uh, you know, you, you obviously Google the person's name and I, I know enough about you already, but, uh, I just love it when it's like, okay, you know, you type in uh, JB Brewbreaker, and, uh, it says, uh, you know, the Google auto populate results, uh, say, you know, JB Brewbreaker uh, net worth. And I'm like, oh my gosh, anytime, mm-hmm. like, People are doing this, and so I don't know if you know this, JB, because I doubt you've googled this recently. But it says uh, you're worth between one uh, one million to five million dollars, um, which is obviously wow. correct. Yeah, I, you have that That's money, so right? Sick. Right,
1: <laughs> right. Holy shit! What, what am I doing? I
0: I, I know. I should upgrade my
1: living situation. Right. I don't know why you're still
0: because <laughs> you live in Pennsylvania, right? Still, obviously. Mm-hmm. Why haven't I moved to San Diego yet? Right, you still. I mean, you you, you clearly are making wrong decisions, but uh, I just find it so funny. But the, it does lead to a more, I guess, bigger, serious question where, you know, considering this band has been, you know, a part of your life since you were, you know, essentially a child, and now more adult like now. Uh, you know, how has it it been for you to kind of navigate the idea of being like a quote-unquote public figure where, you know, people are clearly Googling your net worth, which is, you know, hilarious in and of itself. But like, how have you kind of, I guess, learned how to be sort of that person without, you know, kind of uh, buying into the, I guess, the ego that can sometimes come along with that?
1: Well, I still don't feel, I, I understand being considered a public figure, but it doesn't feel like that to me because I'm not, like I'm I'm still at the point where it's flattering when someone stops me and says, Hey, I like your band. Like that doesn't happen that often. And I'm still stoked when it happens. So I feel like to be a public figure is not, uh, it's not a big deal to me. And I don't know if it ever will be just based on the small circle that my band plays in just in terms of how many people actually listen to this kind of music. Um, it's, it's a very small scene compared to a lot of different circles of music, even though you can play, you know, you can play for a couple thousand people and make a living doing it, but it's, it's never going to be like, I I don't feel at all like a celebrity or anything like that. And I I guess there's a difference between public figure and celebrity, but any popularity I've gained over the years has been on such a slow climb that it, it, I, I never felt like a, a shock of like, Oh my God, you're like a big deal now, dude. Like that. I never, I never really had that
0: feeling. No, I, I totally, I, I agree with you. Cause I, I think anybody that's experienced playing in a band, um, you know, has that level of, uh, kind of like, Oh yeah, no one's going to recognize me. And like when they do, it's like, Oh cool. You know, a teenager recognizes me at a movie theater and gives me free popcorn and that's pretty sick. Um, but that's very thick, right? Yeah, <laughs> but but you know, I, I guess, kind of uh, uh, whatever. Digging a little bit deeper, just that idea of like you know, once once this sort of um, you know adulation comes towards you, where it's like you know, people do look up to you, and people do look up to you know not only your musical talent and the fact that you know this band has existed for as long as it has, but there is s- sort of that um, you know, uh, people looking up to you sort of thing. And I, I think that's kind of more because clearly, yes, like anybody playing punk or hardcore or metal, like, you know, we're nothing compared to people like Brad Pitt or whatever. Um, but, right. but I, I, guess that sort of like people looking up to you and sort of expecting, um, you know, expecting one thing uh, about you and then, uh, you know, maybe you subvert their expectations by saying something on social media or something like that. Um, cause I'm sure you have experienced some, um, you know so <laughs> some sort of people being like oh you know i used to like this band but i don't like them anymore because clearly i mean i'll i'll ask those christian questions later because of course they'll they'll come up yeah but, um they i guess kind that. of gra- grappling with that more or less
1: wait what did you say at the end there i'm sorry i didn't catch that
0: no it's okay i was saying yeah so like how do you grapple with that more or less
1: oh with like letting people down because they've looked up to me
0: yeah that that's um, that sort of transactional relationship
1: that's something that I have had to just sort of accept that um, it's almost like it's a lesson you learn similarly to how, when you release new music, and I'm sure you've experienced this with being in a band, you post a new song and I don't know if you're anything like me, but you read through the feedback cause you care. Like I care what people think of what we're doing as a band. And so we might get, 100 positive comments, and then there's that one negative comment, like, they used to be so much better, this this song sucks, it's not like, they they haven't had their, they haven't been good since this album or whatever, and that's the one that sticks with you, And, uh, and that kind of stings, but you learn to, as that happens more and more, which we've had a lot of that over the last 17 years of being a band, you, you you begin to become numb to that, and you don't focus on those negatives as much as the the overwhelmingly positive things that you hear from people who care about you. So in, in the same respect, sure, I've let people down with maybe like saying a swear word in an interview or something. Uh, you know, someone who's a pretty like rigid Christian might be like, oh, I thought you were a Christian. I don't like I don't like your band anymore because of this or whatever. Like those sorts of things initially would have hurt me a lot more, maybe at 25 than they do now that I'm 35 and have experienced that so much more. I guess I've I built up a tolerance for that sort of thing.
0: Sure. No, I, that does make sense, and I think that you know that probably just comes with your, uh, you know, you growing up and having perspective or maturity or whatever happens as you grow older, uh, being able to navigate yeah. that more appropriately.
1: Totally. I'm an adult now. I'm not a kid. Like I, <laughs> right. I, I totally recognize that you, you can't be everything to everyone,
0: you know? Yeah, for sure. And you like, to your point, you have to, you know, make peace with that where it's like, yes, if I am disappointing a person, it's like, well, that's probably less about me and more about them.
1: Yes, completely. And usually it is like petty, petty things like, like saying the word shit or something like the that just so isn't important in the grand scheme of, of life. And I'm totally over it at this point.
0: Right. Yeah, totally. I've, I've built a bridge and I've walked over it.
1: <laughs> right.
0: Yeah. Um, so kind of, you know, putting the lens of focus on you as a person, uh, I know you were, you know, born and raised in the La- Lancaster area cause you don't say Lancaster yeah. cause that's not, that's not cool. Um,
1: yeah, you. I'm. I'm impressed that you know that. That's that's thank, cool. Thank you. I appreciate.
0: It. Yeah, I appreciate that. I, I. try to be. Uh, you know, try to add my years of touring experience just so I don't look like an idiot. Um, so I'm gonna presume that you're. Uh, you know, your your suburb slash rural living because Lancaster is a w- interesting city where it has that. You know. that the suburb feel, but then there's a lot of people that, you know, live in that general area. Um, so I I guess kind of walk me through that, that experience that you have, because I mean, clearly you're still, you know, living in that general area and you feel attached to it. So, um, yeah. What, what was that experience for you, you growing up?
1: Well, I grew up, um, really in the middle of nowhere is what my family would say. We were like 15 minutes away from the nearest town, which was Mannheim. And that's where I went to school. And we lived on a small farm that had like 10 acres and we had, you know, cows and pigs and various animals. And, um, I went to church every Sunday with my family. I have four older sisters, three of which are adopted. And grew up in a conservative household, all that jazz. And around, I don't know, eighth grade, I said, I'd say I, uh, Started getting into music, and I got into a bunch of uh, I guess alt rock kind of bands like Everclear and Foo Fighters and Third Eye Blind and stuff like that. Weezer, and that got that sort of turned the page to get me into punk, which was which was when like my musical tastes and interests exploded um, as a high schooler. Like I discovered string Smash, and then that opened the floodgates for me for a whole new world that eventually led into hardcore metal. Sure. Anyways, so I guess that I'm not unusual in how I got into this kind of music, but I, I suppose in my upbringing, um, it might, it wasn't the most likely path. But there was also um, a big boom around the time that August French Red started of the quote-unquote Christian metalcore bands. Like that was a real popular thing in like 2003. Oh yeah, so, huge. Yeah, and we were, you know, by definition, one of those bands. So I guess based on our upbringing, that made sense. Sure. <laughs> but just getting, yeah, yeah. But getting into like punk and stuff didn't didn't necessarily make sense. And I wasn't being rebellious. I just liked the music, and I liked the shows, and I thought it was fun. And I enjoyed, like, the counterculture of it, like yeah. anyone else, any other kid did, I guess.
0: Yeah, well, especially the, you know, suburb slash rural life, when you get a lifeline toss to you of this, you know, interesting subculture that's, you know, kind of grinding against the, you know, rules of society and like all of these, you know, really, really um, you know, like teenage issues that you're feeling, it's like, oh my gosh, like of course this makes sense. This is so much better than my parents' music or anything else I've heard, uh, you know, on the local alternative radio or whatever. Yeah, completely. Yeah. I agree. And so you're uh so you were the like you said, you have three adopted sisters. So do you have you have one, I guess like blood related sister or you uh yes. you know, okay. And that must have been an interesting, uh, upbringing in regards to you being, you know, you and your dad being the kind of sole males, <laughs> you know, you were surrounded by women.
1: Yeah. And I, I, I didn't think much of it at the time because it was just my reality. Um, but I think as a result, I learned a lot probably of how, how to treat women, um, based on living amongst many of them through, you know, a lot of ups and downs or whatever, you know, the we naturally go through in our lives, and though I'm definitely not perfect, I I feel like I am decently sensitive uh towards you know with in my marriage to, with my wife. You know, I we get into fights for for you know times where <laughs> where I, I sort of lapse in my uh my sensitivity and become like the typical male. But I do understand. I think. Uh, the dynamics between men and women more so because of living in a house full of women for so many years as a kid.
0: Oh, totally. Yeah. I mean, I think it's the, uh, the experience of being able to, you know, identify with both sexes and understanding, you know, where each side is coming from and the nuances and the differences you're able to, you know, create kind of a more holistic uh, experience rather than just kind of seeing, you know, one or the other.
1: Yeah, and I'm grateful for that. I, I love my family, and I love my sisters, and I, I really enjoyed my childhood. And my sisters were were typically very cool, and we got along, and we still do to this day. So I'm, I'm grateful for those relationships that I
0: have. That's awesome. And uh, considering there was, uh, you know, farm life in your uh, world, was it one of those things where I mean, clearly it was normal for you because you were surrounded by it, and I'm sure you know a lot of your friends and peers were also you know, involved with that as well. Uh, You know, as you started to get uh, more of a broader perspective and realizing that, you know, being raised in in the pastoral community was not something that everyone else, you know, had an experience with. um, Was it, uh, was it weird for you to be like, what do you mean you don't have 10 acres or whatever? What do you, what do you you mean you don't got, (laughs) you don't got livestock?
1: Well, it's funny because the grass was always greener for me on the other side. I, I was jealous of the, of the kids in my school who lived in the town, and got to gather at the community pool in the summer and hang out and be part of those cool kid clicks while I was out, you know, 15 minutes away running around. Like maybe I go down to my neighbor's house and swim in his, you know, four foot above ground pool, which was, which was great. But I always had that, like, oh, I wish I could be in the other place that I'm not. Um, and that, that was sort of, that, that was, I, in retrospect, I feel bad about that because I had it really good. Like I had wide open places to run around and play and ride my bike and, you know, be a kid, which is, which is really cool. I wasn't stuck in a, in a city. So I mean, I appreciate that experience now as an adult looking back.
0: Sure. Sure. And I'm sure too, there was a lot more um, freedom in regards to the fact that, you know, yeah, you could just wander around. Whereas, you know, that might not have been your experience if you were raised in the quote unquote city.
1: Yeah. I could like run across the street and go play in the woods and build a fort and stomp in the creek and you know, that kind of stuff. Which I think people who live who are, you know, confined to city life would would love to do.
0: Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Or at least like, or at least be able to like travel to have that experience because I think that you know usually people that are raised in uh you know non city and like you know more rural areas, a lot of people just kind of look down on that experience and be like, oh yeah, you must have been you know like stupid, but like yeah, you can milk a cow, but like you know you've you've never experienced culture or whatever, and it's like no, that's not true.
1: (laughs) (laughs) I experienced a different culture. (laughs) Yeah, and it's it's funny though because as I as I got older and August 1st started to tour more heavily and started especially touring outside of America, my perspective really started to shift. Just my whole worldview was reshaped from my small town mind, which was um, the fault of no one. It was just how, where I where I grew up. Um, but touring really changed my perspective on a lot of things and opened my eyes to how big the world is and how it's cool to have different views and different cultures and to be our own people, you know?
0: Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And I, I think too, I mean, you know, to your point originally of what you were saying with the attraction to, you know, punk and stuff like that, I think that also really lends itself to all those trains of thoughts you're talking about where you realize like, I mean, I'll never forget, like when I first heard rage gets the machine as a, you know, upper middle white, you know, upper middle class, white suburban teenager and being like, oh, not everybody's world is like mine. And then understand right. that it's like, oh, yes, like there are people who are, you know, oppressed and not as privileged as what I have. And so, yeah, being able to reckon with that and understand where you kind of sit, not even on the hierarchy, but just kind of sit culturally speaking. Yep. Yeah, Totally. totally. The um, and so as you started to, you know, like you said, you kind of traveled, uh, you said the, your local school was about like 10 15 minutes away, more kind of located mm-hmm. in the city, and that's when you started to experience kind of, uh, I guess kids that had a different lifestyle.
1: Yeah, there was definitely the you know, I read the bus in the school and the people who walked to school from their houses in in town, like I kind of envied that. And I thought that that was, that was cool. And they had like different groups of friends than I did. And, um, as we got older, of course, there was more of a a blending of, of social circles and stuff, but it was sort of like the kids who knew each other from being in town versus those of us who rode the bus into town to go to school.
0: Sure. Yeah. You could, you could see the, the difference there. Um, not because you were being judged or whatever, you just saw the difference.
1: Right.
0: Exactly. Yep. rockabilia.com You need your band merch and they are the best providers of band merch I have seen around. They have half a million items. And then plus use this code PC 100 words that gets you 15% off of your order. So August Burns Red is on the show this week, right? They have so much August Burns Red merch you can shake a stick at. And they also have a ton of other items that you can check out. We're getting into summertime. They got tank tops, They have, I haven't looked, but I can almost guarantee they've got shorts from bands. Um, They have a bunch of rad puzzles that I've seen recently. Uh, I'm in puzzle fever right now, obviously, with uh, everybody spending a lot of time at home. But uh, Rockabilia, just the real deal. All officially licensed merch. They pay their bands. Um, This isn't some horrific bootleg you're going to be getting off Amazon or eBay or. Any of those, uh, you know, horrible Google searches that you're like, "Hey, I want, I want a piece of this band merch." Nope, just go to Rockabilia. You know, you're getting the real deal, high quality merchandise. Okay, so Rockabilia.com, PC one hundred words is the code that will get you fifteen percent off of your order. Okay, thank you for your continued support, Rockabilia. Now on with the show. And so, what kind of, uh, you know, kid did you find yourself being as you were going into, you know, junior high and high school and stuff like that? You know, were you? uh, you know, a a math guy, were you, you know, into theater, were you a sports guy? Like, where'd you kind of, you know, find yourself on the, uh, the hierarchy of, uh, you know, high school as it were.
1: Yeah. I was a sports guy for sure. But, um, and I, and I loved to play sports. I loved basketball and soccer and I loved watching baseball and football, but I was tiny. I didn't, it took me a long time to like grow and just be like a big kid. So I was like, really undersized and i never made the basketball team because i was I, I was just tiny and i sucked as a result um i didn't i think the summer before my junior year i grew six inches i finally like started to
0: hit puberty size. i'm just kidding yeah,
1: <laughs> yeah. Uh, essentially yeah i mean <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah you're like but, wait uh, a minute uh, my voice is growing deeper
1: <laughs> right uh, it, I, I was like physically behind a lot of my peers Um, but I was obsessed with sports and I played them as much as I could, although I, I only got to play like intramural soccer and basketball, um, until, until high school, I played on the high school team, but I was never good at, I was never very, very good at them. Um, I didn't, I I liked, like, I liked classes enough, you know, and, um, but my attention was definitely one recreation. Like I would, I would have been one of those kids that said, Fiz Ed was my favorite class, you know?
0: Right. <laughs> sure. Sure. <laughs> did did you, were you into like a uh, track and stuff like that? Cause usually, you know, the kids that, uh, you know, maybe don't have the physical stature to, you know, play football or basketball or whatever, are like, well, I'm tiny. So I'm low to the ground. So I'm fast.
1: I, I, I ran cross country for one year. I enjoyed long distance running and I should have mentioned that I, I played tennis. Um, Oh, okay. Grades, grades 9 through 12. That was my sport. And I and I was on the varsity tennis team um, my sophomore, junior, and senior years. Nice. So, yeah. And tennis was actually like my thing. I was way into it. And, and ping pong. I loved ping pong. Like, I was a big ping pong player.
0: I, lo- um, I, I love that. You're yeah. like, well, which came first? Would you say you were a bigger tennis player and then ping pong you backed into it or ping pong and then tennis?
1: Ping pong and then tennis. Okay. My, my You're like, this is the bigger version table. of it. Yeah, um, and I played with my dad a lot, and that's that sort of cultivated my interest in, in both of those games. But I, I played tennis um, all through high school and then into college my freshman year, and I quit my freshman year because it was so intense. And I went to a small school. We weren't like – it. it was not a big deal at all, but the practice and conditioning for tennis was intense to the point where I was like, this is not fun for me anymore. And I'm so much more into music and going to shows and trying to put shows on and trying to start this band that I quit tennis and just fully committed to uh, basically being in the hardcore scene and going to shows and starting August Right. Right. So quitting tennis was was a huge changing or a huge turning point in my life.
0: Sure. No, absolutely. I mean, and I think so many kids have that experience of like, pivoting away from something that, you know, they were so interested in, whether it's like, you know, maybe they have a bad coaching experience or, you know, they do have, a uh, you know, this dueling passion that starts to emerge. Like you're talking about with music, where it's just like, dude, I gotta, I, I gotta follow this road more so than this road because of all of the reasons that, you know, you were illustrating. So I, I think it's really, it's cool that you, uh, were able to articulate that. Cause I, I don't think a lot of people, um, you know, maybe think of it that way, but it's like, yeah, you got to drop one passion in order to focus on this other thing.
1: Especially, because sports uh, as you climb up the levels, they just become more and more time consuming, and I I wouldn't have had time to do anything but tennis and study and go to class. You know, it was it was going to be like that, and I'm like, this just isn't important enough to me to commit this much of my life to it.
0: Yeah, for sure. Um, what did your what did your parents do for a living? My Dad was a doctor,
1: uh, a family practitioner, and my mom was a nurse. But um, as long as I can remember, she was a stay-at-home mom. Sure. So, well, she got I, I to take when, care
0: of all those those kiddos running around yeah,
1: the house. Yeah, <laughs> there, there was five of us, so yeah, she was full-time mom, very busy doing that.
0: Sure. And the, uh, the, the, the process of, you know, adoption and introducing new members of the family into the household, um, do you remember much uh, in regards to that? Because I'm sure you were, you know, relatively young as, the, as that all started to kind of happen. But, um, you know, anytime, I mean, even, you know, a new uh, baby coming into the world is, uh, you know, a transition period and stuff like that. So how did you kind of, um, I guess, navigate that?
1: But I was actually the youngest of the five, so I don't remember any of my sisters being adopted or, or being babies. Sure. Um, my three oldest sisters are, are all adopted, and then my parents – because my parents were unable to have children for whatever reason. Got it. And then my biological sister – uh was born and then i came as a complete
0: accident <laughs> right a couple yeah. years later yeah you were the you were the uh you were the uh g- surprise you were like oh wow look look at this we didn't mean right. this
1: <laughs> right that's right got it but you know I, I was a boy so i guess it was uh a nice dynamic change
0: right yeah they're like wow it's not another another girl i i guess this is cool yeah <laughs> <laughs> um And so, and did you care about school? Like, you know, were you uh, doing well? Were you doing, you know, A B student, or were you just kind of like coasting by? Where did you? What was your passion for uh, in regards to schooling?
1: I was an A B student um, with the occasional C, and as I got into higher math, that's where my C's came from. I I just never, I, I uh, my senior year of high school, I took a statistics course, and we had a graphing calculator, and I was. I spent all my time learning how to program this really uh, crude text-based like choose-your-own-adventure game that I would type out, and like I just learned how to do a lot of like basic programming, and and, and I got a D in that math class, but I made this really stupid. Uh, choose your own adventure game on my graphing calculator. And was really proud of that. Dude. So, you, I, I learned I, something completely I, unnecessary, but sure. Yeah.
0: <laughs> well, I still wish you had that. Cause that sounds sick. <laughs> yeah.
1: <laughs> I'm sure it would be really embarrassing for me to read through it now, but, uh, yeah. At the time I was, I was into it.
0: Dude. Well, of course, I mean, you're, you, I love the worlds that, that kids build, you know, whatever it is that they get into and like you were just so committed to this, I'm going to tell the story, I'm going to do this. And there's just like, if a teacher would stop annoying me. I would be able to get more work done.
1: <laughs> <laughs> well, and I've always been the kind of person who pours myself into whatever I'm into at that moment. Like I, I go hundred percent into whatever, uh, is, is pulling my attention. So at that time, this.
0: Yeah. this choose your adventure. Story. Gave them my calculator. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, totally. No, that's great. Um, And, you know, it, it's been well documented that, you know, August Burns Red, like, you know, started with uh, you, you guys in high school and stuff like that, but you know, like you said, punk was kind of your first introduction and then you started to kind of peel away the layers and start to, you know, get more into, you know, hardcore and metal and stuff like that. Um, you know, kind of talk me through that, that, that recognition of the DIY scene. And like you said, you, you know, you started to put on shows and you started to get really involved. Um, but what was kind of like the next level beyond, um, you know, kind of the, you know, the offspring and green day and rancid and stuff like that. What was the next kind of band or, you know, grouping of bands that kind of were like, Oh my gosh, like, there's a whole nother world underneath this.
1: Yeah. um, I guess I started to get more into the uh, hardcore kind of punk bands. Like big wig was really important to me. Um, Good riddance. Uh, Basically I wanted music that was, I wanted it faster and, and harder. Like that was like the goal I wanted, but I wasn't fully like committed to getting into screaming yet, but I need like a bridge to get into screaming music. And uh, bands like that for me were Poison the Well, who sang and screamed a lot. And uh, Finch, What It Is to Burn, was important to me. My senior year of high school, I really loved that record. Oh, and they screamed a, a little bit. You such, know, a, such, like
0: a good re- such a good record. Yes.
1: I feel like that was like a... That, that was like an album that was important for so many people when it came out. It well, just... It, it was...
0: Yeah, it was so... I mean, at, at that time, too, it was like... It, it was so easy for, I mean, I'm 39 years old, so I am a little, how old are you?
1: I'm 35.
0: Yeah. So, well, I mean, whatever I, I usually mark different generations in hardcore and punk, like every four years, like high school. So like we were technically different. Sure. Yeah. Different generations. But I remember it was like, you know, glass had existed already. And so like listening to what it is to burn, I was just like, ah, whatever, dude, it's like a glass jaw rip off. And then like the second or third time through the record, I was like, no, this is really good. <laughs> like the, the, what, what am I talking about?
1: It was awesome. And my least favorite tracks were actually the songs that featured Dale from Glass I was like, (laughs) I don't like this guy's voice. Yeah. I've never, I never got into Glass I, I missed them. Um, They were too aggressive for me, I guess. Sure. They were blowing up and I just missed the boat on them. Um, Which is funny because of some of the stuff I got into afterwards, but. Yep.
0: um,
1: So I guess. Finch and and Poison Wall opened my eyes to screaming, and then I discovered like Eulogy Records and a lot of the bands on that label, and and Trust Kill and Ferret, and they were putting out bands like, uh, Bury Your Dead. I loved Bury Your Dead, and uh, I actually booked them a couple times at our local American Legion Hall, and then our first full U.S. tour was with Bury Your Dead, which is cool.
0: Nice, um, full circle
1: moment. I'm yeah. sure you were. I'm sure you were
0: like, "Whoa, dude, we get to tour with Barrier Your Dead. I could. Br- we can break uh, up I now." Was,
1: Oh, was so sick, dude! I was that, that was really cool. Um, uh, and I got really into—I—I I was obsessed with just bands that played breakdowns. Like that's—I just wanted—I—I I, I was all into moshing and breakdowns and beatdown bands like Unbroken Wings and Oh yeah, classics until the
0: until the end. Oh yeah, like, dude, lo- that yeah, kind yeah. of stuff. I I love. It's funny too. I'm really glad you kind of brought that that idea up. Like when you start to get obsessed with a, uh, you know, one particular style, uh, you know, of music in regards to, you know, hardcore, like clearly there's like, you know, a million different subgenres, but like, you literally can't get enough. You're like, okay, what's another band that sounds like that. Okay, cool. Give me another band that sounds like that. And like, your thirst is insatiable. Right.
1: And there were so many bands too. And, so many labels, and it was uh, it was a really blossoming scene, I think. And as I started to discover more bands, I started getting into more uh, stuff on the metal side of things. And I'd say bands like Converge and Between the and Me opened up uh, like that next door for me of playing heavy music, but also with intricate guitar parts. It wasn't just breakdowns. There was a lot of really cool stuff going on between the heavy parts. And sure. that's what really began to start influencing August 1st. We started out as, you know, a local band when I was really into the, just the beatdown stuff. Like, like I was saying earlier, a lot of the just ignorant breakdowns and stuff. And that's the kind of band we wanted to be. And that's all we could play at the time. We were pretty terrible musicians. Um, but once I finally discovered, you know, between the Berry and me and stuff like that, I was like, wow, this is, Technical and interesting. And uh, A Life Once Lost, a great artist, if, if you're familiar with that record, that was oh, yeah. really influential for us. Just the, and it's funny because they were probably heavily influenced by mashuga
0: but oh, he- I never, I <laughs> heavily never, is an understatement, but yes, yeah. Right, <laughs> right. And I never got
1: into mashuga Like I, I, I get how influential and important they were to so many bands, but I was being influenced by the bands that were influenced by mashuga And that was like that, that art, uh, A Great Artist by A Life Once Lost, that record, opened the doors or opened my eyes to to odd meter breakdowns and intricate rhythms and and that whole world of, of, or that whole way of playing breakdowns. And that's something that August Granger really, uh, did a lot of and still do, I guess. Um, that's kind of like a cornerstone of our sound.
0: Well, I, so, I, you know, and I really, yeah. uh, you know, I appreciate your honesty in regards to because, I mean, I think that that happens to everybody when it's like you get your, you know, your lid blown off by a particular band because, you know, they're touring at the time and like, you know, they're in your scene or whatever. But like, you know, there, there were a lot of bands that you could not... Um, you know, like you had no uh, touch point for. Her. So it's like, you know, even though Beshuggah obviously existed, like, you know, they weren't, you know, they weren't from Philadelphia. So like you weren't, you know, you weren't going right. to see them. And so, I, I think that, you know, you start to build off of your own personal touch points and influences, um, and you build, and you kind of, you know, you, like you said, you recognize the importance of these bands that came before and you can like them, but it's not as like easily accessible. And I think that's what, you know, whatever, you know, silly purists are just like, Oh dude, you like this band? Like they're just a rip off of this band. You're like, well, that's cool. But like, you know, I, I can't, I, I couldn't see that band. So at that, you know, my 16, 17 year old self could never have had that experience.
1: Totally. Yeah. And you know what? I never really liked the vocals in the sugar. I never liked the, I never liked the vocalists in that band and it made me not want to listen to the band, but I love the screaming from a life, a life on sloth. So if they were just second rate, my sugar, I didn't care because I liked the vocals with the music. So it's just, worked for me you
0: right know? yeah you're like bob yells his head off and it looks like he's going to have an aneurysm yeah. every time <laughs> yeah of course <laughs> totally <laughs> yeah <laughs> and so uh, you know as you started to you know uh, play out and start to experience the world at, you know as august burns Red. because i mean is august burns red like essentially your first band yes
1: my first and only band
0: which is so Any time, like there's i mean i'm sure i know you guys wear that as a badge of pride uh but it's that is so rare
1: Like it's like yeah it's weird it it is weird but we we just grinded for so long that it just we're like we're going to do this this is going to happen I don't care how long it takes like we're gonna make this work and (laughs) right yeah and it eventually did
0: (laughs) right right no for sure because yeah it's like you know, having, having these, uh, you know, 400 some odd discussions on this podcast, like, you know, usually I, I find a fun anecdote of a person's first band, you know, with like a terrible name. And then usually you could immediately identify what their band sounds like. Um, but it's like, you know, it's like August Burns Red, uh, you know, Davey from AFI. Well, you, it's like,
1: there's just you great. Know the, yeah. You know, August Burns Red is exactly how we sound. Right. Like, <laughs> there's, there's no surprise there.
0: Yeah. No, that's <laughs> That's very true. I, I, and, I, and still, uh, to this day, yes, you could easily be like, August Bird's Red. Okay, cool. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I get, I get where they're coming from.
1: <laughs> Did you say that Davey from AFI, that's, that's his first band as well?
0: Yeah, AFI's his only band, dude
1: wow i know that's it's cr- crazy i know it, it, that is crazy
0: it's a like i said it is a rare occurrence because usually and, and i classify first bands very uh loosely in regards to like you know whatever if you've recorded demos and stuff like that but like you know if you get out and play some shows like you know a handful of shows like that's your first band you know but like yeah there's yeah. very yeah you you are uh that's a rare occurrence so good job <laughs> Um, Thank
1: you. Yeah.
0: <laughs> but, but anyways, so the fact that it is your first band, uh, and you started to kind of, you know, experience all of this as far as like playing local shows and starting to do, you know, playing out and stuff like that. How, you know, uh, how did your parents react to this really weird thing that they probably had no context for? Um, and just kind of seeing like, oh, I guess JB's like playing guitar in a band. Like that's weird.
1: Yeah, it was weird. I, I bought my first guitar when I graduated high school. And I remember I bought a crappy amp off of a buddy of mine for like 50 bucks. And my dad was like, what are you doing? Like, why are you buying this stuff? Uh, it seemed odd to him that I was getting into it. And then I was really just spending all my time putting on shows, going to August, during red practice and playing whatever shows we could in college to the point where we got signed and I dropped out of school, uh, after my junior year. Um, and my parents have been paying for my education, and I imagine now as a parent, if I had poured tens of thousands of dollars into my child's education only for them to bail on it one year with one year remaining, I, that would really be hard for me to get behind. but my parents were were surprisingly supportive. They had the attitude of, "Yeah, you're young, go do this while you can. You can always go back and finish school." And they, I think they thought it would be something that fizzled out uh, after not too much time. But at this point, they are so proud of of August Burns Red, and they come to our shows when we play, um, you know, in the Philly area or at home. And I I can say that they've they've always been very supportive since they realized how seriously I was taking it, which is cool. And my parents are great for, for being supportive in that way. I think that would be difficult to do as a parent.
0: Yeah, no, absolutely. Cause I mean, it, it's not like they're, I mean, clearly they're looking at it through the lens of, I don't understand this. What do you mean? You're touring, playing guitar in a band. Like, you know, yes, they understand the wide swaths of it, but you know, most, Civilians, you know, when you say tour, you're just like, "Oh, dude, you're on a sick tour bus," and it's just like, "No, like we're we're traveling to 15. Yeah, definitely not. Yeah, not at all. Yeah, that that takes 10 to 15 years. But uh, the right. <laughs> but the the notion of like they were just, you know, concerned for your well being of being like, oh, I don't like, you know, that's where they were coming from, rather than being like, oh, we want to snuff out our our child's hopes and dreams.
1: Right, and they didn't get the music, which I understand. I I wouldn't have gotten it either. And I'm sure that was a bit of a snag, but like I said, they were just so, like, okay, honey, if this is what you want to do, you know, we we support you.
0: Right. We'll
1: probably want for that.
0: Sure, you're going nowhere fast, but okay, JB. (laughs) (laughs) What did um? What were you studying as you were going to college?
1: I was a marketing major, and I was uh, a business
0: minor. So Okay, both practical.
1: I'm definitely working in an office if I I didn't go down this path.
0: Sure, sure. That makes sense. And now you're uh, applying those principles to uh, everything you've been doing with the band. So, you know, the degree isn't, or your lack of degree isn't wasted.
1: (laughs) No, I'm sure I've learned so much more doing August Burns Red um, than I would have ever learned in, you know, three majors uh, in college, you know. Real life experiences that
0: Valuable. Yes, absolutely, totally agree. Um throwing throwing no shade on you guys, I'll I'll be completely uh, honest and admit it that like when I first heard you guys, uh I was just like, holy crap, like this is really cute. It's a total unearth ripoff, uh, but they're Christian, so I get the difference <laughs> between it. Um, and I'm sure that much of kind of maybe the first two records and, you know, you guys kind of getting out there in the touring world and stuff like that, just trying to establish yourselves and kind of, you know, get respect and a foothold in it. You know, I'm sure that most people kind of dusted you under that rug in many respects, uh, you know, earlier in your, your touring sure. life. Um, was it, was it one of those things that you guys were like genuinely, uh, you know, or generally aware of, or was it something that you guys were kind of like, oh yeah, like, you know, I, that, that wasn't where we were coming from, but I understand why you're saying that. And, you know, we'll just kind of continue to push on or did it like hurt your feelings? Like, you know, kind of, <laughs> I guess, walk me through if you can remember that, that sort of mindset you were approaching in the early years.
1: Well, we loved on earth. So <laughs> no surprise that we sounded sure. like them yeah. um, to, to some degree on earth was, was and still are way better guitar players than Brent and I will ever be. And, um, I often think that that band should be way bigger than they are based on, they kind of led an early wave of bands and a lot of them, um, unfortunately for them surpassed them in size and just how their career path went. But yeah, I know it was certainly influential on us. And as far as being like this Christian band out of the gate, there was definitely a concern of ours because we didn't want to get pigeonholed and just play for those crowds so much to the point where our when we took our very first tour, which was with Barrier Dead and Terror, um, we had another option to do a tour, a, a solid state tour, which was the first record label we were on. And it was Haste today Day and the Chariot. And we were like, eh, you know, we we will probably go over better on this Haste today Day tour, but we don't want to, we, we want to do this cred tour with Barrier Dead and Terror and get out in front of people who, might write us off just because we're on solid state records, like might not have interest in us because of the Christian affiliation. So we wanted to set that standard immediately. And I think that was a smart move because it did get us the attention of the secular world right out of the gates. Whereas I think we could have been stuck only playing to those, you know, Christian fans and Christian circles on Christian tours for a long time. Mm
0: -hmm. No, for sure. I mean, it's, um, I think so many, especially at that, that, you know, age in the late nineties and early two thousands when, you know, solid state and tooth and nail were so synonymous. And like, there was this, um, this real interesting thing that I saw where so many bands were delegitimized because it was just like, oh, dude, you're playing to the, like, you know, you're a Christian band. You immediately have a built-in fan base. Like you don't have to work as hard, which there is obviously a grain of truth into that. But at the same time, like, you know, that fades away pretty quickly if, you know, like you aren't good or (laughs) like you don't work hard. And, you know, I I think that it was, um, you know, unfairly. So a lot of bands were kind of, you know, lumped into that and then couldn't, you know, cross over because it was just like, Oh dude, what are you like, you know, this, this punk hardcore scene, like does not accept Christianity, you know, whole cloth. Like you gotta, you gotta prove yourself being like a cool human and not just like, you're going to, you know, bum us out by saying we're, you know, spitting on stage or whatever.
1: Totally. And we, we tried not to preach. Um, We tried to lead by example, I guess, as far as the whole Christian thing went and, Um, we were certainly much more rigid about that when we were, when we were younger and coming up. Um, I don't even consider myself to be a Christian at this point in my life. And a lot of my views on, uh, like I was saying earlier, my worldviews have shifted and changed a lot as I toured and experienced more of the world and talked to more people and just sort of was able to formulate my own opinions. But when we were starting out, we would pray around our drum kit before the set started. Um, not into the mic or anything. It was just like this solemn public showing of like, everyone knew that we were praying. I remember play player set. we didn't want to talk about God or anything, but it was like clear that we were a Christian band because of that, I think. And that was kind of it. And then we stopped doing that once we started getting to the point where we would have like, uh, like a walk out, you know, if we were going to if we were headlining a show or something, it came up like a a sample of some sort. That kind of went away in time. And it was just the slow evolution of us changing as people. Um, And I'm not speaking for everyone in the band at all. Uh, Our singer Jake and our drummer Matt are still uh, still Christians and that's an important part of their lives. But um, Dustin, Brent, and I, I, I don't think that's not important to us anymore. It has nothing to do with music, um, and I'm just not – I'm not a fan of religion in general.
0: Sure, organized religion.
1: My life. I, yeah, sure. I yeah, I, I understand spirituality and looking to a higher power and stuff, but I, I, I have qualms with the modern church and blah, blah, blah. I don't know how much you want to go into that kind of stuff, but um, I don't even know what the original –
0: no, we no, no. <laughs> no. I, I mean, just, just the the ability for certain bands to be able to kind of you know transition to you know being just like I was joking about earlier, you know, just the Christian on Earth or whatever, and being like you know a B rate substitute for the Christian scene or whatever, um, because clearly it's like I, I don't think. <laughs> I still remember this experience myself where it's like walking into a Christian bookstore and, you know, like having these bands that were just like, you know, blatant ripoffs of everything uh, that you could possibly want in a quote unquote secular band. But it's just like, oh, no, here's like the Christian version of Deftones. And you're like, yeah, but this sucks. Right. This is terrible. Though.
1: Sounds like sounds like Green Day. <laughs> like you'll be on the marketing sticker. Yeah.
0: Totally. It's like, yeah, because because you can't uh, you you can't like Billy Joe because he swears on stage. You know, here's a C-rate version of Green Day.
1: Right. And that came down to parents, what their parents were letting kids listen to. I don't think there was there were a lot of kids who. Necessarily only wanted to listen to those Christian bands, but their parents wouldn't let them have the CDs.
0: Very important. Unless they
1: bought them at these Christian bookstores. I mean, uh, our drummer would be an example of that. He had to buy his music from places like that. So if he wanted to get into screaming bands, he had to look to bands like Norma Jean and, and Zayo and stuff like that because they were sold at the Christian bookstore, so it was deemed appropriate for him to listen to.
0: Totally. And the th- the thing that always bummed me out about that too was uh, just like how expensive those CDs were. I felt like, you know, whatever, you go to a you know, another record store and you can buy a Norma Jean CD for, you know, seventeen ninety nine and the Christian bookstores are like twenty-two ninety nine, you're just like what the heck? Like, is this a is this an upcharge? Because you know you're buying the CD in a safe space. It was so mean.
1: I yeah, I, no, I didn't even realize that that was a thing. I didn't. I never. I never knew that. But uh, I guess so. People they they were price gouging because they, knew they could,
0: I guess right because <laughs> they're like yeah the the parents are going to allow them to you know i mean it, that, i think that only happened for a couple years but i just so remember it's like once especially once that you know tooth and nail and solid state product was you know quote unquote allowed to be sold in you know independent record stores and stuff i was like oh yeah there's a huge right. difference like i'm going to pay you know 6 dollars less at this other store but yeah i, I digress um When you first started to kind of, you know, feel like the band had, you know, some some wind behind its sails and you started to, you know, kind of understand and uh, realize that there was, you know, a business to this uh, music business. uh, Was that difficult for you to kind of, you know, navigate and understand um, or was it something that you were kind of comfortable where it's like, well, yes, like, you know, we've been kind of trying to build to this point. So this is just something that kind of comes with the uh, comes with the package, so to speak.
1: I always loved the business side of August Burns Red and, and doing music in general. Um, even before we were uh, doing anything of value as a band, I was really into, like I, like I was saying earlier, promoting shows locally and uh, investing that money back into August Burns Red. Everything we did initially was just to make money to fund trying to get August Burns Red to the next, or you know, get buy the old band or buy get, like newer guitar cabs and those sorts of things. So that that side of of being in a band has always been really fun for me, and um, I feel like there needs to be someone in your band who's really committed to looking out for the best interests of the band as far as the business is concerned. Because if you just hand everything over to someone else i don't I don't think anyone it, it's hard for someone who's not actively a part of the band to have the same drive i think to 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 look out for the band the same way that a member of the actual band would and we 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 had a great manager for many years who who did great by us, but I was still heavily involved in the business side of things as well as our other guitar player brent and I think I think that's a big reason as to why we've had the su- success that we have had is because we've always been really careful with how we've handled our business and the decisions we've made, and we never just let it up to someone else to decide, you know, what tour to take or how to spend our money on this or that. It was always coming directly from inside the band.
0: Yeah. No, I I agree wholeheartedly. And I, I, you know, observing you guys from a distance and, you know, knowing a little bit of your intricacies, the, uh, the idea that, you know, there's always, there should always be one or two band members that are staying relatively close to the business side of things. Like you said, rather than, you know, sometimes, I mean, clearly some band members like have no interest in it and that's fine. Like they'll, you know, be a voting, (laughs) there'll be a voting process and, you know, they'll be like, Oh yeah, I think we should do this. And then you can be like, Oh, I actually, no, I don't think that's a good idea. They'll be like, okay, that's fine. But yeah, to your point. <laughs> totally. <laughs> yeah. To your point, like people just kind of signing it off and being like, oh yeah, you know, like just let us know like when we need to like make a decision or whatever, rather than, you know, kind of three hands on the wheel, so to speak, where it's like, you know, manager, band member, other band member, you know, like that's what you want and that's what can hopefully lead to longevity.
1: Yeah. And I think in this case that that is, that was super important to, keeping us around for as long as we've been and and still relevant after 17 years um i think if we had just handed the reins off and checked out and just played the shows and written the music we would be clueless what was going on and and we would have uh sort of fallen by the wayside much much more quickly
0: sure yeah I, i agree and there definitely needs to be a balance it's not just um Yeah. It's not (laughs) the creative process also needs to include some sort of business. Otherwise you'll never play, you know, outside of your own city or whatever. Right. Right. Um, so, you know, as you know, the band kind of, uh, you know, grew. And once you started to, you know, kind of make these, these really, uh, you know, interesting jumps in a band's career where it's like, okay, you know, we sold 500 tickets in this city and then like, now we're playing a thousand cap room or stuff like that. Um, you know, are are there and I realize this may be a difficult question, but you know, are there sort of, you know, anecdotal moments that you think about, you know, maybe in the first whatever, five to seven years of the band's life that kind of stick out to you as real sort of like either turning points, um, and it doesn't need even need to be directly attached to like a specific moment, whether it was like a specific tour or whatever. Um, because I always find those really interesting uh to discuss because, you know, band members can all have different differing opinions of that. Um, so is there anything that kind of sticks out when I, when I talk about that.
1: Yeah, there's a few, I think, sort of I'll I'll say launch pads that we've had or or moments along the way that I could I, like we felt growth and momentum behind the band. Um when our second record messengers came out, uh we had no expectations on on sales or anything at that point. And we were at Cornerstone Festival out in Illinois in 2007 and our A&R, John Dunn, was there from Solid State, and he told us that our first week numbers were in, and uh, we had sold a little over 7,000 records, which was a shock and a surprise to us. And I think we we were, like, number 81 on the, the Billboard charts. And that was one of the, that was the time where we were like, wow, okay, cool. We're, we're like, starting to catch on a little bit here. Um, and then on our next album, Constellations, I don't remember what, what that sold, but I remember on the headline tour we did for that, We sold out the Chicago House of Blues um, on that tour at 1,300 tickets. And that was a big wow moment. That was the first time we had ever sold um, over 1,000 tickets on on a single show. And it was far from home. And we had been touring hard. And that was one of those moments where it seemed like all the supporting we had done for the past however many years was beginning to pay off.
0: Yeah, that's really cool.
1: Yeah, that that was that was like a, a feather in the cap kind of moment for us, I think. Sure. And then doing the warp Tour in 2011, uh, we got to play on the main stage as one of the quote unquote headlining acts on Warp Tour, and um, our record Leveler came out on that tour and sold 20,000 records in the first week and debuted pretty high on Billboard, and and that whole summer, like it just felt like we were like we had arrived. That 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 felt like the the big coming out like we meant something everywhere we went
0: which, mm-hmm. was, which was cool yeah totally and it's it, it, what's really cool too is the fact that you know l- earlier in the conversation you were mentioning all these bands that you know you got to do early tours with or were influenced by and then you know you started to uh, be able to not only bring them out on tour but tour with them and kind of have these these people that you looked up to now be your peers as opposed to, um, you know, just a person you admired from afar because of their musical abilities and stuff like that. Um, you know, talk, talk to me about that process of kind of like, you know, feeling like you are at the same level or even, you know, frankly, sometimes more popular than these bands that you were clearly influenced by.
1: In 2007, we took out a life once lost as our main support. So that was like, a,
0: a <laughs> that was weird. One I'm of sure. those 100-
1: it was weird, but it was cool. Cause I never really knew those guys before that. And we got to hang out with them. And, and I was the annoying guy on tour who was always like, show me how to play this riff from this song. Like,
0: I, <laughs> You're I just a to, punisher. I love it.
1: Yeah, totally. And I wanted to learn from the guys that I, that I looked up to and respected. I, I did the same thing to, uh, you know, the guys in Unearth and darkest hour. when we toured with them. And um, I did it to like as lay dying, uh, Nick from as lay dying and they can teach me, riffs, and I'd be like, like we'd, we'd be jamming on our little Roland micro-teams warming up, and I'd be like, let's play through this song, like, pull out like some random song from an Isolated Dying record. I'd be like, show me how to play this part, and I'd be like, let's play through the whole song. Like, I was definitely the, the the Punisher on tour, and I and I never really thought of it that way until just now. I totally was being a Punisher, even though I was just trying to learn, and right. but I, I was fanning out at the same time.
0: Yeah, but that's so... I, I really appreciate you saying that because I think it's so uh, special when you're able to kind of share these moments with people and you are like literally genuinely curious about like how they play these songs or how they put it together. And like, you are able to have this really, um, you know, personal experience and it comes from a genuine place as opposed to, you know, I use the word punisher as a joke, but like, you know, like it's, I think that's special and I'm glad you expressed that.
1: If, if they weren't into it, I was definitely punishing the hell out of them. That's true, but <laughs> I'm sure why. I'm sure there were moments
0: where it's just like, dude, JP, lay off, man. I can't do this five right. minutes in a row.
1: Oh, I, I remember being out with Between the Barry and Me in 2007, and uh, I had Dusty like sit down and like show me how to do sweep picking because I wanted to learn. I was like, you gotta teach me how to sweep, dude. Like you taught me my first like roll three string sweep.
0: Oh man, <laughs> you're like yo. Can you can you play some glass casket, bro? <laughs> Show me. Yeah, I love I love that. I love glass casket. <laughs> oh dude, yeah. I, I signed them when I was at Century Media, and then when uh, it was oh, wow. pro- it was probably one of the weirdest scenarios because. I was friends with the Between the Buried to Me guys, and like, they would always stay with me. And then I signed Glass Casket, and was friends with them. And then when the <laughs> Between the Buried to Me to basically a Glass Casket to get members, it was like I'm, right. so, I'm still friends with everybody, but this feels weird. Like it feels like I should be concerned business wise, but I'm like, well, they're all my friends. It's okay. <laughs> It's so weird, though. <laughs> but but you totally did lose your band. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. I'm like, well, looks like we're never getting a second glass casket record. <laughs> I mean, we did and there eventually. We
1: had a lot of talks for a while. Uh, it took so long, and then it was just. I mean, BT band was so busy. Oh. I, I understand why they couldn't juggle both.
0: <laughs> oh, absolutely, and I get it, and they made the right decision. No, no, no. Uh, yeah. yeah no qualms against them, but yeah, but that no, that's really cool. I'm, I'm glad you expressed that because I think that you know, there can be those weird misgivings that some bands have, where it's just like, Oh, my band should have been more popular or whatever. But like, I really think the bands that have the ability to stick around can have that sort of mutual appreciation that exists with bands that are younger than them. And they don't, um, you know, they don't carry around that ego of like, Oh, I should be better because I, you know, I should be more popular or whatever, because I was here first. Right.
1: It's, that's not a good look. So it's, even if you feel that
0: way, I feel like it's best not to express it, probably. Sure. Yeah, totally, totally. <laughs> have you seen that kind of reflected back at you? Because I'm sure you have in regards to bands that, you know, younger bands that you have toured with that kind of, you know, maybe don't do it to the extent of you did where, you know, you punish band members to give you, uh, you know, YouTube tutorials in person. Um, but, you know, have you kind of noticed that that <laughs> coming back at you?
1: Yeah, for sure. Especially when we do... Like, we've been doing some 10-year anniversary tours for older Records over the past few years. And as we meet younger bands and take them out on those tours in particular, there'll be times, like, towards the end of the tour, one of the guys from a support band will come up and be like, dude, I just need to tell you, like, this record was so important to me when I was coming up. Like, I learned all these songs on guitar and blah, blah, blah. Like, we've heard that from from a bunch of bands over the years now that we're sort of veterans in the, the metalcore world. And I appreciate it because I totally understand where they're coming from i i I felt that way and feel that way to this day of a bunch of bands that were important to me,
0: yeah, no, that's really cool because I think it's you know as long as you're coming from a genuine place and not some you know weird social climber status, like that's you know it feels good to not only hear that but then in turn to be able to kind of you know express that to other people as well, where it's like Hey, I like, I really like your band too. Like, I'm glad this record influenced you. Like, you know, there's a reason you guys are out on tour with us or whatever.
1: Right. Yep. I yeah. totally agree. That's, that's awesome. really cool.
0: That's awesome. Um, well, the last thing I want to hit on was the fact that, you know, because the band has existed for so long and you have, uh, you know, essentially, you know, grown up over that time and, you know, you guys all are in completely different spaces than you were when you were, you know, starting the band, you have families and like all Mm -hmm. these other obligations and, you know, the band is, uh, you know, you're living, um, how, how is it, uh, you know, juggling the idea of, you know, obviously being a father like yourself and, you know, having a wife and all of these things that didn't exist. And, uh, you know, when, not only when the band started, but, you know, five, six, seven years into the band, um, how, you know, I guess, how do you kind of like treat tour now? How do you, um, I guess still care about it. Cause a lot, you know, I mean, I understand it's your livelihood. So of course, like you're going to care about it, but at the same time, like it's, uh, you know, some people get jaded at a certain point. Um, where do you keep, I guess, that enthusiasm and how are you balancing all of those? I realize it's a big question. I'm sorry, but.
1: <laughs> no, that's okay. I think that I'm motivated by a few things. Of course, uh, providing for my family is, is at the top of the list. Um, but I also recognize how special and lucky I am to be able to still play music for a living because there are so many people out there who dream to do this. And, and Work on it for so long and, and never make it, never get that proverbial break. And um, if I ever am on tour and you know my neck hurts from the night before, and I don't feel like going out and playing, or I have a cold and my body aches, or whatever. Um, it's it, it can there, there are days where you don't feel like doing it, but as soon as I get back, as soon as I get on stage, I am I, I just snap into show mode and remember why. I love doing this and and how lucky I am. And that, that quickly grounds me whenever I start to get those negative thoughts, because it, it's really not fair to, for me to feel that way, because like I said, there are so many people who would do anything to be in my position. And I don't want to ever take that for granted. And it's funny because we're currently uh, at home. We're supposed to be on tour right now and we're at home because of the coronavirus outbreak or pandemic. And it's. This is the first time I have really felt like I, like I, I really took for granted being able to go on tour whenever I wanted, and and how uh, special that that is. And now that I don't have it, it's it's it really has put things in perspective for me, even more so.
0: That's it. Yeah. No. That's true. Because I, I do. When you kit, especially you know the pace that you guys have you know, handled everything over the past, you know, whatever, five to six years where, you know, you guys have played a lot of shows, like you guys have done a lot and you've made your presence felt, you know, worldwide and continued to do that, to be able to take this unintended pause and to be able to realize the importance of you being at home, but at the same time, the importance of you also being away. I'm sure that's kind of a a, a weird juxtaposition that kind of collides in your head
1: it definitely sucks being a father and having to leave my wife at home to fend for herself with a, a wild two-year-old boy who's a great kid. And I love him for that. He's awesome. But 24 hours of parenting for six, seven weeks at a time is a lot on even the most patient of, of people. So, um, the father and me feels bad for having to go off for long periods of time, but, um, the husband and provider in me knows that it's what I need to do for my family. And my wife understands that too. I've been in, a, in the band as long as she's known me and she's only known me as a touring musician. So she's used to me coming and going and understands um, why, why I have to do it and why I want to do it. And that it's a, a gift and very, uh, and that we're very lucky that I, I have the job that I have. So with, with touring there are always going to be pros and cons because of how it, it removes you from your, uh, you know, your second life, basically your life at home. But uh, it's important to find someone who understands that if, if you're in a relationship as a, a touring artist, you got to find someone who understands the, they have to see both sides of the, the coin or it's just not going to work out.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Then, then it'll just be, you know, fighting and there will be no um, yeah. Consistency in the relationship and it'll fizzle for, yeah, for sure. Um, last thing I promise where your, uh, your son, you know, I know that you've taken to shows and, you know, he's probably, well not taken to shows of watching you play maybe, but you know, maybe uh, watching you play a little bit or whatever. Um, you know, clearly he's he's only two years old, so he has very little concept of the world and stuff like that. Um, does he, uh, you know, find it funny? Like what, you know, how does he react to you playing guitar and stuff like that?
1: I think he, he's, He knows I play guitar and that's what I do. Like that's Danny's work. Um, I don't think he quite understands what the band is. It's all very novel for him. He was at uh, our pre-production before we started our tour with Switch Engage a week or so ago. And that was just a barrel of monkeys for him. He loved being there and getting to walk around the the stage and hit the drums and all that kind of stuff. It's all novel for him at this point. I don't even think he recognizes when I go away on tour, like where I've gone and right. that I'm, you know, he's, he's living in the moment, which is nice because it's going to get harder as he gets older and is asking questions as to where, where I'm going and why I have to leave for so long and, and all, all those sorts of things. Yeah. So I don't look forward to that, to that no. happening, but it, it's yeah. inevitable.
0: Yeah, for sure. For sure. No, that's cool. I, I appreciate that. I just, I, I just always think it's interesting um, because, you know, generationally speaking, are, uh, you know, I mean, I have an eight year old and he's watched me play before he hates my music. And I'm glad about that. Cause like, you know, if he liked it, I'd be like, dude, what are you going to find? But like, that's a weird experience watching your parents play in a band, like, and especially a band, like the, of the worlds that we travel in, it's like, that's not common. So it's like, <laughs> that'd be like, right. I, I, I imagine like, that'd be like you, you looking at, you know, your dad or mom playing in a band, you'd be like, "What? this is weird? Yes. Cause it's not supposed, that's not
1: something you, you think of cool people that's not a cool parent thing that's like a (laughs) yeah a real like just a cool person in general not a cool parent
0: (laughs) right totally or like a parent plays in a band it's like yeah you're you know gigging with your friends every six months and playing you know cover songs at a bar mitzvah or something (laughs) like not yeah not like not like you a world touring musician where it's like oh interesting
1: (laughs) yeah it'll be interesting to see how he responds to what i do as he starts to understand it my wife and I were just discussing this the other day. She, she thinks he's going to go through a phase where he thinks it's really cool and then he thinks then a phase where he thinks like it's so dorky and I'm such a loser for it and my music is so not cool. Yeah. And then when he gets older again, he'll he'll come around and think it it's it's special again. So, we'll see. I I I could see it going somewhere along those lines in the next 15-20 years. Yeah.
0: <laughs> Totally. Yeah. Yeah. It's like, and the moment that he brings something home that you don't recognize and you're just like, yo, this is some, this is like, I'm old. I don't understand what you're talking about, dude.
1: Oh, I, I know. I, I just have this feeling. I'm not going to get the music he gets into. I'm just like, I don't, what, what do you like about this? Right. But, yeah. You know, my parents were cool about it. So I, I'm sure I'll be cool about it as well.
0: Exactly. You're like, as long as you're not harming yourself and you're in somewhat safe spaces, like we'll be okay.
1: Right. Yeah. Right.
0: Well, JB, thank you so much for hanging out, dude. This was really fun. I really appreciate it.
1: Yeah, thanks for having me on your show. I I was happy to do it.
0: That was a great discussion, right? I... Appreciate JB because um, not only was he excited to appear on the show, which obviously always is a positive thing, but uh, was open and honest about all of his experiences in playing in the band and uh, you know sometimes the uncertainty that comes with playing in a band. So thank you, JB. I really appreciate it. And uh, yeah, that's what we had for this week. Next week, I have a discussion with Matt Honeycutt, the vocalist from Kubla Khan, Texas, or TX as they are called. Uh, they are an amazing hardcore band and I love what they do. I kind of wrote them off for a long time, uh, through no other reason other than just like, ah, whatever. seems like a, you know, silly metalcore band with a name that I don't really care about, but, uh, Matt is the real deal. Very thoughtful, very insightful conversation. So that's what we got next week. And until then, like I always tell you, please be safe, everybody.